that were together. And for the first time, I, I saw these things. And it spoke something into me that I believe that God has to share with you here this morning. May you yield. I don't know what's going on here today, but I know that God is doing something. And for someone here today, the thing that you need to hear is that God is waiting. May you yield to him. It's a question and it's a statement. May you? Yes. Yes, you may. He's ready. He's waiting. He's gracious. He's like a loving father that's just waiting for you to run to him. And I don't know where that lands with you here this morning, but I know this. I know that when we draw near to God, that he draws near to us. And if you are lonely and you're feeling broken or you're feeling distant from God, may you yield to him, may you yield to his presence, knowing that there is power in the name of Jesus. There's power for every situation, for everything that you are going through right now. There's power and there's peace and there's hope and there's freedom and there's joy and there's a hope and there's a future. This is not hopeless. This is not the end that Jesus is intervening for you right here and right now. He is desperate for you. Oh God, may you do something here today that only you can do. Oh God, may you be worshiped. You alone are our savior, only you can save. And so God, whatever's going on today, may we yield to you, may we yield to your presence. We love you. There is power We're going to just open the front. If you want to come and pray, let's just take some time to pray this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we acknowledge that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But against principalities and powers of the air. And Satan's agenda, very open about it, is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's out to steal from individuals in this congregation. He's out to kill individuals in this congregation. He's out to destroy this church, and not only this church, but every church that he sets his sights on. And we come against that now, not in anything that we can do of, of our own, but it's in the name of Jesus that breaks every chain. The name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, you are Lord. You are in control. Jesus, this is your church. We are small a small expression locally in a small town called Eau Claire, in a big nation. But we know that your hand is here and that, Jesus, you are the Lord of the church. And I pray that you would call us to prayer. You would call us to intercede. 
You would call us to holy living and, and righteous speaking. That, God, you would raise up here as an expression of the love and power of Jesus Christ. People who love you above all things, who love one another and who love our community. Father, we just, we're going to go on today. I'm not sure exactly what all is going to happen, but I, I thank you that you are the God of surprises, but nothing surprises you. So we just place this service in your hands and ask that you do your work and your will today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. We're going we're gonna to take the offering real quick. Ushers are going to come forward, and, and as I talk, just go ahead and start, start passing the plates. If you are with us for the first time, we invite you to take the Connect card, or if you have a prayer request, you want to fill that out. If you have prayer requests or praises, we've had great answers to prayer. Fill that out, and you can put that in the offering. God. Yes. Many people today, when asked the question, would answer, yes, I believe in God. What that person means by the statement, I believe in God, can mean a lot of different things. They may simply believe in a supreme being. They may believe in an intelligent designer. They may believe in Mother Nature or God, the mother of all created things. By affirming that I believe in God could mean the God in all of us, or the God of nature, the animating force, or the force, as in the Star Wars version that says, may the force be with you. Well, according to one recent survey, 89% of Americans believe in God. 89%. And the number is higher if you add those in that, that revere a universal spirit. But only, interestingly, only 63% say they are absolutely certain of God's existence. And actually, less than 1% call themselves atheists or agnostics in America. Some believe in God, as in many gods, or as one of a part of a whole. Agnostics would say the existence of God is an unknowable proposition. And atheists actually contradict themselves because they say, I don't believe in God, which basically defines, they define what God is, and then they say they don't believe in it. So it's really a contradictory statement. Well, the vast majority of people in America today believe in some kind of transcendent being that is beyond our physical senses. And we find in popular culture attempts to address the existence of God, like the movie Bruce Almighty, where Morgan Freeman plays God, and God lives and acts in the world, but he lives in Buffalo, New York. Well, the mystery of the existence of God and who or what God is has existed for centuries, and I'd be foolish to think that we could answer all of the metaphysical, cosmological, ontological, philosophical, or spiritual questions about God in one sermon, let alone in one entire lifetime. What about God? Was our nation founded on God? Yes, it was. I know that there's a lot of rewriting of history about our nation, the United States of America. We find, first of all, that we have, we have what are called the planting fathers. The planting fathers were the Puritans of New England that came to practice their brand of Christianity and, and they wanted to found a Christian state. They established congregationalism, and they supported their church with taxes and compelled their magistrates to govern according to the rule of the word of God. Then you had the southern colonies that basically were Anglican, and the middle colonies were kind of pluralistic. And so you had the planting fathers, and about 150 years later, 
After the Puritans came the founding fathers that hammered out a new national concept which basically said that we're gonna guarantee the state will have no interference or authority in matters of conscience. There wasn't gonna be a state religion, but there was gonna be free exercise of religion and rather than discouraging its expression publicly, they encouraged its expression in the public sphere. During the early days of our country in the 1740s, we had the first great awakening, we had the second great awakening, and the ninth century came to a close with the third great awakening. And all of this history shows that our nation was founded, and for the vast majority of this history, people described God as someone they believed in, and we were described as one nation under God. But 1,700 years before that, before our nation, there was a there was a person who claimed to be from God, to know God, to actually to be God, and that was Jesus. And as we move on into our series today, after some of this background, we're gonna look again at this person who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God, and the question is, who is our God? Who is our God? Who is the God of America? Is it the God of the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the God of the Bible? Well, as we look for, forward into this in the book of Acts, we're going to look at, a, at an account where the Apostle Paul gives a discourse to a people, and he says, this is my God. And I want us to look at the characteristics of this God of creation of the Bible. Who is God? Let's look at Acts 17. Who is our God? Acts 17, we're going to start with verse 16. It's on page 899 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Acts 17, Acts 17, starting with verse 16. Interesting discussion. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul, the main character in this story today, is in Athens. It's an ancient city in Greece that is known today as Athens. <laughs> just thought I'd let you know that. And the city of Athens was full of people with just lots and lots of ideas. They were teachers and intellectuals and philosophers. And they came to Athens to speak their mind. People in Athens spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, immersing themselves in the culture of the day. A modern-day comparison could be a lot of what we see in the media today, whether it's talk radio or television interview shows or, or comparing it to what happens on the Internet. Filled with bloggers and vloggers and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, Snapchat or Whisper, filling cyberspace with all kinds of ideas, philosophies, and political statements. It's just full there. And people were just having this conversation in Athens about all these things. And, of course, today we live on... Any, in an any, anything, anytime, anywhere world that is always on. But in Athens, it was a lot simpler at that time. There were, there were two main schools of philosophy. These were the two main streams of philosophy, only two. The first were the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that happiness and pleasure were the primary goals of a tranquil life. Don't worry, be happy. They believed that everything happened by chance and their gods were remote, uninvolved and it was irrelevant. So they, they just figured, felt like they were just basically on their own. There was no need for concern or anxiety. Life was just to be lived free of passion, pain, or fear. Eat, drink, and be merry. Today it would be dine and find restaurants, drink your beer at the club, go to the Packers game, attend concerts, fish, hunt, water ski, snow ski, visit exotic dance clubs, cruise the internet porn sites, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. It's all about pleasure. It's about, all about me and my pleasures, indulgence and appetites. The Epicureans said, gods don't matter. It's all about me. It's all about us. Very similar to all of us today. We are raised in this culture that's steeped in, in just the desires moment, following our desires moment by moment. The greatest value is individual freedom and just do whatever you want. Then you had the Stoics. The Stoics. The Stoics had the opposite perspective. For the Stoics, life was determined by the gods. It was to be lived according to the laws of nature, but it was completely free of emotional involvement. You've heard about, about being Stoic, being, never expressing emotion. The goal was to accept nature and live in it without passion. All nature was an expression of the gods, so you just live with it. There's a, there's a sense of fatalism, and, and it was like, pan, like a, a, a type of pantheism, which God is in everything. So you hug a tree, save a whale, worship a cow, eat vegetables. That was just all that nature was all about. You get the picture. So here comes Paul. Paul comes into this thing, and his philosophy, his philosophy is so radically different. They call him a babbler or a seed picker. 
Now, a seed picker is someone who plagiarizes others' work. It's someone who snatches up bits and pieces of knowledge here and there, not doing any research. It was rumored that he worked for the New York Times. But in verse 18, they say he, he was advocating foreign gods. This is because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus, the resurrection, that Jesus would someday judge the world. And that was really, really weird for them. In fact, when Paul wrote about some of this in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church, he's talking about the Jews and the Greeks and their response to his message of the, of the cross or the, the message of the resurrection. In verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, it says, For the message of the cross is foolish, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jews were looking for miraculous signs. Let's see some miraculous signs and proof. The Greeks were looking for the intellectual wisdom part. And Paul preached something that was totally outside the box, not only to the Corinthian church, but also to this group of people in Athens. He says he, he preached Christ crucified, that Jesus had to die for your sins and he had to be resurrected. And they just couldn't grasp that. They said, this, that's foolishness. So how did Paul then move on to describe this God that he says was unknown? In verse 23, he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. This is what he's going to proclaim to you. What we would say to people in our world is we, we would say, we see that you are very spiritual, you are religious or whatever, but you don't know God. And this unknown God, I'm going to reveal to you. And Paul names basically seven characteristics of this God. This is not exhaustive, but these are found in this particular passage to a people who didn't know God at all. To him, it was totally foreign. So he starts by saying, number one, God is personal and knowable. This unknown God is knowable, he says. This supreme being, this force, this intelligent designer is a personal supreme being. And he created people with a capacity to know him. This personal knowing can be so intimate that we can actually call him daddy. Daddy. The Bible portrays God as our Father, and of course, there's a place that talks about Abba Father, which means an intimate, familial relationship that can be intimate, that we can know this person who's called Father. Father. And I don't know what, what image comes to your mind when I say the word Father. We all have different experiences with our fathers. Some never knew their fathers. Some had distant fathers. Some had abusive fathers. Some had kind, loving fathers. But the word Father is described... To, to, is used to describe the nature of this relationship, an intimate, loving, caring relationship as a father is supposed to be. Father. I had an imperfect father. I am an imperfect father. 
But this description of God as Father denotes a relationship that is beyond anything that we can describe. The idea of he's personal and knowable, and he cares about every detail of our lives. In contrast to this personal, loving, knowable God, he says God is transcendent. He's the creator. God created us. Now, do, do we try to create him as if God is a product of our limited mind and understanding? The Greeks put God in their box of understanding. They said, this is how we understand God to be. So how do you understand God? How do you understand? Paul says he's transcendent. He's, he's the creator. We look at nature. There are, there are so many examples in nature. One example I read about not recently was uh, uh, the monarch butterfly. Do you have monarch butterflies here? Okay. I haven't seen many around here, but the monarch butterfly. Um, scientists have studied the migration patterns of the monarch butterfly. They migrate. They migrate between Canada, Canada and Mexico, legally, of course. Um, <laughs> and as they fly, they leave one area and they fly, and it takes four generations of death and birth and death and birth and death and birth for them to return, and they always return back to the exact place they started, even though it's the great-great-grandchildren that actually return. Migrant patterns, this is an amazing thing, this migration. That's just a butterfly. God, God did that. And you look at all the under, other wonders of nature. They discovered seven new planets this week. You know, we think we know a lot about the universe. You know, we, we think we know a lot. And we just discovered seven new planets uh, around a, a one star. And they're all, they're all in the sweet spot, able to be inhabited by life, etc. And it's amazing. You know, it's, four, it's four light years away. Uh, so it's a little bit distant for us to be able to get there. But God did that. God did that. You, you look at the magnificence of the human being. Now, it doesn't seem so magnificent at times. We look around us and say, uh, maybe I'm not so magnificent. But we all have consciousness. We all have thinking and reasoning. And the fact, the fact that you can listen to sound waves that I produce, I form words and they enter your ear, they vibrate the drum, go through these little bones, down through the nerves, and down to the brain, to the brain, while you read my lips, and you understand what I say. The assumption is you understand my sermon. Okay? That's the assumption. God created that. Not the sermon, but God created that process. And we take so many things for granted. You look at what God designed, the incredible nature. He's the creator. He's the starter of all of that. Now, if you have questions about God as creator um, or intelligent design, I, I'm going to challenge you. There, there's an institute called Discovery Institute. Um, it's not a religious organization per se. It's in Seattle, Washington. Discovery Institute is a, is a, is a group of philosophers, scientists, and all kinds of in, brilliant people. They all believe in intelligent design. That's for sure. Now, they, they believe in some kind of intelligent cause. But Discovery Institute, if you want to find it, look on discovery.org, discovery.org. You can spend weeks on their website looking at those kinds of things. And they spend all their time looking at the causes for all these natural phenomena, the scientific, metaphysical, all the things that are there. If you go on that website, you'll see incredible information about God the Creator, whatever they call Him, discovery.org. So God is transcendent. He's a creator. And Paul told them, this, what, what you see around here, he created all that. Okay? That is our God. 
Number three, God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. He says that he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Doesn't need anything. Now, we love to be independent and self-sufficient to think we don't need anybody. And, and that's kind of human nature. Well, the Greeks believed that their gods needed people. Okay? And you think, that's kind of an odd thing. God needs people. And I, I've heard somebody say once, they said, well, God needed companionship, so he created humans because he needed us. No, I'm, I'm sorry. God doesn't need anybody. Says he, as if he needed, you know, he created us for, we don't know all the reasons, but to love and be loved and whatever, but he didn't need anything. He didn't need anything. But the Greeks believed that God needed people. And if God needed people, then he could be manipulated and then they could, he could be bargained with and you can bribe him, okay? That's what they did. They thought, I can, I can do that. Now, of course, we never try to manipulate or bargain with God, do we? Do we ever do that? You know, it's one of those things that somehow we think that God can be manipulated or bargained with. We can't bribe God because he doesn't need anything. And that's what Paul says. God is self-sufficient. Then we find that, number four, God controls the past, present, and future. God controls the past, present, and future. It says, from one man he made every nation of men. Of course, Paul is referring to Adam, the first human. Um, one of the things that you find when you read the Bible, you find many instances where Jesus or Paul or Peter quote from or use uh, or they write about the fact, the fact of history of something in the past. Jesus talked about uh, the great flood, Noah and the ark. He talked about Jonah and the big fish. He, he talks about the origin of man and, and marriage and one man, one woman. He talks about the, the original creation story of Adam and Eve. And so all throughout the Bible, you see these affirmations about the beginnings of history and the, the inerrancy and reliability of scriptures. And here he, he just talks about Adam and Eve, the, the beginning of, uh, of Adam, the beginning of history. Um, a little boy asked his mother, is it true we came from dust? And his mother said, yes. Then he said, is it true that we go to dust when we die? His mom said, yes. The boy said, I just looked under my bed and someone is either coming or going. Well, we did come from the earth, and that's the biblical record. And we find, we go through the Bible, and this is just one segment where Paul basically gives his, his stamp of approval on the authors of the Bible. And as Paul talks to these people in Athens, he states that God determined the exact times and places in history. It says where the nations would emerge and live. In other words, he's saying God orchestrated all of history. He has been behind the rise and fall of nations. There's a, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. There's a, there's a, a, a pattern, there's a purpose between, be, uh, for all history. He's been behind the beginning of nations. God has raised up the United States of America. Do you believe that? God has raised up all nations, allowed nations to rise up, whether it's Russia or China. For America, he's raised us up to be good and do good. And the primary purpose and plan for our country, the most significant purpose of this country is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. 
I know we think it's all because it's, it's all to bless us and, and to enjoy all the fruits of all that, but the primary purpose of God's blessing on America is for us to share the gospel around the world with people that need to hear the gospel. And we have that responsibility as well as a responsibility to take the gospel to our country. But God has a plan of all of history. And we can take hope in the fact that God is the God of all history. You look at the mess in the world, and I, I know it's hard to think that God is in control here. We look at the Middle East and Iran and Syria. We look at the aggressive actions of Russia or China, the political and military and economic battles going on. But there's one constant in all of this. God is in control. When you look at uh, the nation of Israel and Judah, God was always in control, even utilizing heathen nations and, and bad dudes to exercise judgment to send them in exile so that they would be brought back to, to Israel someday, and that one day the Messiah Jesus would come through that nation Israel. He orchestrates all of history, and we must take courage in all of that. God is in control. We have a God who's, who's engaged in the life of our nation. Now, I, I concluded my message on January 22nd, I talked a little bit about this because we, we get concerned about, about what's going on in our world. Now, according, according to biblical prophecy, we know how history concludes. Now, we don't know whether the rapture uh, happens before the, before the tribulation, mid-trib, end-trib, you know, you can go through all these things, or whether this happened or that happened. Well, all we know is that there are certain things that we are very sure of in end times, biblical prophecy. In the last days, there will be a one world government where the government controls everything in a person's life. They will be totally dependent on the government. You look at, look at prophecy and you read about the mark of the beast, and if you don't have the mark of the beast, you cannot buy, sell, or anything, okay? There's gonna be a one world government, the Antichrist will be in charge, okay? The government will decide who lives, who dies, and when they die. And, it's, and if we look at it in today's terms, it would be called one world government globalism. And it, it hasn't just been the last eight years of our, of our President Obama that has pushed that. It's, it happened a lot sooner where they're pushing this globalist agenda. There's an enormous attempt to move that direction. Globalists, as they're called, are already in charge of the European Union. I talked about this several weeks ago. And President Obama and the globalists in America, largely the progressives within one party, have attempted to weaken the United States, blur the economic boundaries worldwide, and usher in the United Nations as sovereign over the United States, and control every aspect of our lives through healthcare and government dependency. And everybody gets sold on this and say, this would be good, so it's a one world government, we'll all get along good. The problem is it's godless and it's based on, on evil rather than good. Globalism. Now there are only two nations standing in the way of this one world government, the globalist vision, Israel and the United States. Israel and the United States, they, they said no, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna give up our sovereignty, okay? And you add to that Great Britain since the Brexit. It was an interesting happening where there's, it's like we're not quite ready See, Obama's vision was to weaken the U.S., eliminate borders, become one of their neighbors in all nations, to usher in a golden age of one world government. That's the agenda. Now, we know that's gonna happen someday, okay? 
We know that there is going to be one. It doesn't mean it's ready yet. Okay? And obviously, the time is not yet for these events to occur. But the main obstacle to the institution of this evil one-world government remains the church of Jesus Christ. And what event has to happen in order for the Antichrist to take over and one world government to be predominant? What's that one event? It's called a rapture. It's when Jesus removes the church from the face of the earth and all of a sudden there's nothing restraining this Antichrist. We're removed and there's one world government and then Satan can take over through the Antichrist and do his thing. We know how it ends, and of course we know that in the end times what Jesus does and it comes back and all of those things, the tribulation, um, all of those things are part of the, of the plan, and God is in control. But the world is not ready yet for all this to happen because the whole world is not evangelized. It says there's going to be the gospel will pre be preached in every nation, and we need a worldwide re revival, and we need to see that happen before this can happen. And God used Brexit. He used the last election with a new president and other world events to slow down the arrival of these last days events so that the church of Jesus Christ can fulfill her mission to bring the gospel to everybody. God's in control. Don't be afraid. We, we must not be passive and roll over, but we must not fear because God is in control. And Paul, talking to these people in Athens, says God is in control. This is a God that, that governs over the rise and fall of nations and leaders. God. And this God who is so awesome and powerful, number five, God is close and reachable. God is close and reachable. It says he's so close we can touch him. The Greeks had been living in this ignorance, a fog of darkness. The unknown God had become known through the person of Jesus. The Bible speaks clearly in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men without excuse... God is noble, God is close. People that don't know about Jesus can understand that there is a God who cares about them just by looking at nature. Nature, God speaks through nature. God speaks through Jesus Christ, the living word, and through the word of God, the Bible. But God is close and reachable. Number six, God is our life source. God is our life source. Verse 28, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Verse 25, the last part, says he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. This isn't pantheism. This isn't God in everyone and everything. But God is the source of all life. And one of the things that scientists have failed to be able to do, they've tried a lot, is that's to create life. Nobody has been able to create life. They have to have something to start with. Once an organism is dead, a plant, an animal, a person, there is no life. God is the life source, and he is the only one that brought back the dead to life. He brought back Jesus in the resurrection. And because of that resurrection, which sounded so crazy to these people, because of that resurrection, he guarantees life after death, eternal life for all of us. And we are absolutely dependent on God for our entire existence. We live and move and exist. And the seventh characteristic of God is expressed in an action. God calls on all people 
to repent, to repent. Repent of what exactly? In the past, said God overlooked the ignorance of not knowing God, but said now the Greeks have the news. This is who God is, and he will someday judge the world. So he's saying, repent. This is God. And the proof is that Jesus was raised from the dead. He said, turn away from the false and the unknown. Turn to the truth so that you can know God. Believe to know God. So what? So what? God is personal and noble. He's transcendent, the creator. He's self-sufficient, controls the past, present, and future. He's close and reachable. Is our life source calls us to repent? Four questions. Do I worship false gods? Do I worship false gods? Are there things that take, take place of the living God, the, the, the way that, that I live my life? Am I worshiping a false god? Am I worshiping something? Is anything more important, any person, is anything more important than God? Do I try to appease God somehow? Have I reduced God to an image that needs to be appeased? Do I worship any false gods? Second question, am I concerned when others worship false gods? Paul was greatly distressed. We are surrounded by idolatry. I don't know if it bothers you or not to see people chasing after things that are meaningless, trying to fill their life with, with things that don't have meaning, that don't fulfill. Are you distressed? And say, if you're not distressed, say, God, help me to see people as you see them so that I am distressed when I see them worshiping false gods because it's so destructive. And number three, do I worship God in ignorance? Is God known by me? How well do I know this God I worship? And number four, what am I going to do about it? There are three, three responses that we can have when we're confronted with truth. Their first response was unbelief, verse 32. Some sneered. They refused to even consider the evidence. They were locked in their intellectual box, and it was foolishness to them. And many people today just sneer. They just refuse to believe. The second response is to delay. We are withholding judgment. They said, we will hear you again. When we delay our response to truth, our hearts can be hardened and calloused. And God wants us to respond today. Isaiah 55, 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And the third response is belief. It says, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Believe means to place your trust in, your confidence in. And it requires repentance because we have to turn away from previous beliefs and actions and turn away from other gods, turn to God, to the one true God, which is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We can know this personal, transcendent, creator God, self-sufficient and sovereign over history if we repent, turn to God, and accept this truth. Romans 10, 9 to 10, we've quoted it a lot in the last few weeks, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth you confess and are saved. What is your response today? Who is your God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there were people that had all kinds of different beliefs that we can identify with today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to our hearts about the one true God and how you desire in every way 
for us to know you. You're God who wants to be known. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that if anybody's here this morning, that if they don't know you, they will reach out to you. Because you are as close as our heart. In you, we live and move and have our being. I pray that, that you would draw all of us to that closeness that you have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move to a time of celebrating that Jesus resurrection today in communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or even attend here um, to participate in communion. You can participate if you know Jesus as your Savior. We're going to stand in a moment, and, and uh, I'm going to invite you to the, those helping serve and assisting. If you can just stand up at the tables. Uh, we're going to invite you to come down the aisle in the middle and take the elements and go back. And you can, when you go back to your seat, you can be seated and take the elements when you're ready. Okay, you don't have to wait for everybody else to have the elements. So when you get back, just take some time to pray, meditate, and get your mind straight, and then go ahead and take the elements um, as you are seated. And uh, we'll be in worship time. We'll take some worship time this morning for that. Um, I want to read a passage of Scripture that talks about communion. For I received from the Lord what was also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Forever. Let's, let's do that. Nobody knows what's going on. Who's in charge around here? That's wins and you win. And the world wins. Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. God bless you.